0: Welcome to Last Lamb Standing with the Lamb Sisters, Drew and Meg. Each week, Meg covers a topic that is crazy, spooky, goosebump-inducing, or just plain old WTF. While Drew covers subjects that relate in some tenuous nature, but is completely real, explained, and sometimes downright scientific. So grab your safety blankets and microscopes and join us on our strangely empirical quest. Hey, Drew. Hey, Meg. Happy belated birthday. Thanks.
1: I will not disclose how old you are. (laughs) That's (laughs) right. She's 29, guys. I wouldn't wouldn't know, I have to do the math every time
0: anyone (laughs) asks me, like, what year is it? (laughs) Uh, I know, I stopped counting after I turned 30.
1: Yeah, well, it's like after 21, right, which is, of course, the milestone year. And then after that, every other milestone is medically based. Yeah, <laughs> And it's like, that's not fun. So. Yeah. <laughs> All having to do
0: with your uh, uterus. Yes. <laughs> uterus, foods. Okay, well, look, I, we're having a special uh, edition tonight for us. Not for you guys, but please join us in drinking to <laughs> Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I infused some gin with uh, a, a little mixture I got in North Carolina, and it's uh, rose... What did i say rose peppercorn and fennel and then i put cucumbers in it and gin and tonics and they're pretty delicious it's delicious
1: so cheers cheers happy birthday clink, clink.
0: Strangely, if you guys the first time we've actually clinking. drunk
1: well not we are drunk that we've drunk drink, drink alcohol drink drunken drink that we are drinking there you go alcohol Currently. while uh, <laughs> while recording oddly enough I know.
0: Well, you know, you kind of want to have a clear head when you're putting eh, your voice out there, eh, right? Eh. Screw that. One of my favorite shows ever made ever was Drunk History. Drunk History. <laughs> <laughs> the best show ever.
1: I, I, mean, like, like, I could only take so much of it. And then once they start puking, I'm like, oh, mm. my God, <laughs> it's like I did. I feel for them. It yeah. like, just sounds horrible. But
0: then they get right back to it. Mm-hmm. My brother in law was on an episode of that yeah okay so what are you talking about today no yours makes more sense
1: so you yeah say yours
0: okay i'm talking about here come the men in black (laughs) galaxy defenders
1: did you have to listen to that song a couple of times no but it's been stuck in my head for forever
0: (laughs) while researching this like every single time i picked up the book it's all (laughs) playing
1: on the loop just that one phrase (laughs) Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> so you're doing Men in Black. I am doing Lady in Red. Ooh. Not the song. Lady though you're welcome to in red <laughs> yeah, there is you go dancing <laughs> with me. Oh, that's terrible. Cheek to cheek. Now we're gonna have that stuck in stuck in our heads as well. Um, so it's Lady in Red and other archaeological mistakes. Ooh, I love archaeology. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I either wanted
0: to be an archaeologist or a geologist and i really should have followed my dreams instead of yeah. listening to some standardized test that put me in a box of marketing <laughs> my senior year <laughs> is that what you did yes cuz i didn't know i don't know my senior year i was like i don't know what i want to study and then i took one of those stupid yeah personality test or whatever it was that they give you at school aptitude test yes. or whatever yeah and mm-hmm. it said that i would be a good marketing director and i was all like okay i can do like um
1: madman you know like mm-hmm. <laughs> i took one it it was a class it wasn't archaeology it was anthropology class that was mm-hmm. like an in, mm-hmm. supposed to be an intro for archaeology yeah. I'm not sure if I finished that class. I feel like I got an incomplete on that one because it was so over my head. Oh, really? The way that they were talking about civilizations and things, it was, it was. Oh, I really liked that class. You took it at
0: LSU? Uh Uh-huh. I took it too. It might not have been. It might not have been the same one. It was just like anthropology 101 or, you know, like just like the intro. Yeah, after that class, I was like, ooh, anthropology. That's kind of cool too. Anyway, now it's never I'm, too late, never too late, except I don't want any more student loans. Screw right. that. I know. Um, no, thank you. I am poor and broke and a starving artist now.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you saw recently, there's a, um, a man in Louisiana who graduated from high school at age 82. What? Isn't that wonderful? Oh, it's a really cute picture. Nice. Yeah anyway Um, okay so yes do you want to do yours I'll do my tidbit okay so we think we get we are I always thought that we get half of our DNA from our mom and half of our DNA from our dad because that's kind of what we've been told turns out that's not the case yeah I didn't think so oh I mean I knew it was a
0: mixture but I didn't think it was equal half and half okay okay what'd you think I mean it just varies that's why Mm. you have like you know how some kids look exactly like one parent and then their sister or brother looks exactly like the other parent. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So it's like one. so they yeah. have more DNA from one parent than the other.
1: No, I think that that has more to do with what becomes dominant in in the mix that they get rather than one being more dominant the other. Uh, I mean, rather than more DNA from one than the other. Oh, anyway. Okay. Turns out, though, that you get everyone regardless of who you look like mm-hmm. everyone gets more DNA from their moms oh that's why
0: the mm-hmm. um what is that gene the um that you can follow through the the mother the, the mother's lineage what is it called uh, not mitochondrial um yeah oh that's it the mm-hmm. mitochondrial DNA yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's why it's so easy to track the the mother's, the mother's line yeah so oh that's cool
1: so yeah the mitochondria is the the Power source in all of your cells, and there's a little bit of DNA in every mitochondria. So you get a little bit from that. In in the whole grand scheme of things, it's not a huge percentage of the DNA that you're getting. But yeah, it's that mitochondrial DNA that allows you to track all the way up. So your your mom, your mom's mom, your mom's 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 mom. It's my mom. Um, but also there's the, then there's um, the X chromosome. So females get two X chromosomes. Males get an X from mom and a Y from dad. Turns out the X chromosome holds thousands more genes, like that, no, I'm sorry, thousands of genes. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Y chromosome only has about 200 genes. That's why they're so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> That's why um, women are better. So yeah. <laughs> So in general, you're getting more from your mom. That's interesting. More genetically related to your matrilineal line. That's cool. Women ruled the earth. Yes, mm-hmm. and and it's you know what? It's
0: because we come from Mother Earth. There you go. So my tidbit today is from my head. I've been binge <laughs> wa- <laughs> I've been I've been binge watching. Um, so that's not true. It's not from my head. It's from a show. I've been binge watching the these woods are haunted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say a vast majority of these woods are haunted are Bigfoot encounters, which is interesting. There's uh, quite a few uh, dogmen encounters, which are kind of creepy. I didn't realize there are some in North Texas, I think
1: I saw one in Australia.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're all over. But the, the gross, the creepy thing about dogmen is like when they go from four feet to two feet, it sounds like they're mm-hmm cracking their bones in a, in order to stand up that to me is so creepy but this story wait what
1: are you talking about werewolves so i thought a dog man would have just been similar to a a, a werewolf no similar <laughs> <laughs> similar to bigfoot it's just already always on two feet because it's part dog part man no dog men are like these beasts that look like they're from the depths
0: of hell that Mm -hmm. can go from four feet to two feet and they're just huge and scary but this one this story uh i'm just gonna tell you real quickly because it's local so i was one i was shocked that uh new orleans was on these woods are haunted because we do not have woods (laughs) specifically (laughs) this takes place in metairie which definitely does not have woods no if you don't no, if you are not from around here, Metairie is your very stereotypical concrete suburb area. It's just like right outside of New Orleans, and it's just all old strip malls and
1: yeah. houses.
0: So there is some parks. So this takes place in a park. Okay, okay. So nineteen eighty-one, this guy from I think he's from like North Dakota or some somewhere. I can't North remember North Dakota. North Dakota. He moves down here and he's working at a clothing store and. Uh, this girl walks in who's like really attractive. So he's all, oh, I'm going to holler at her. So he hollers at her and it's like, she's like checking out a sweater. And he's like, Ooh, that's going to look good on you. When I pick you up on Friday night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> he's definitely from Metairie. Right. no offense. So she,
0: he's like, what's your number? And she's like, I don't give out my number. And he's like, well, um, how about I come pick you up? What's your address? And she said, My de- my mom doesn't allow boys over but why don't you meet me at this park, uh, on Friday night at you know, seven o'clock or whatever. And it was a park in Metairie. And so he's, he's like, okay. So he, he's like, it's t- what, the first thing that he said was weird because he said it was 22 miles away, which Metairie is not 22 miles away from anywhere in New Orleans. I guess maybe if you were in New Orleans East, and then you drove out to metairie and are it was like sure on the, park, the far end of metairie. are you sure the park was in metairie they may have just gotten the job no route. he he specifically geography said route. i had never been to metairie louisiana that's what he specifically said and he said it was called prospect park which i googled it could not find anything with that name what? but it was 1981 so maybe there was something named prospect park in 1981 yeah. and the second thing is they like just visually you know the editors of the show they show a car driving down this like lovely wooded <laughs> s- single lane highway i'm like um that's not mattering but anyway so he gets to the park and he goes by like the basketball courts and there's this dude playing basketball and he's like hey do you want to play he's like no i'm waiting for somebody and he waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and waits and she never shows up so finally surprise surprise. right (laughs) so finally the guy's friends show up and he's like all right we're gonna have a game why don't you join us he's like fine whatever i don't have anything else to do so he ends up playing basketball with them for like four hours and then the he said the parks uh lights stayed on late weekend night so at midnight they shut off so at midnight the lights go off and he's like i want to get a beer where's the closest liquor store and the guys were like Oh, there's one this way. Let's let's take a walk. And so they all start walking. And he said they were walking down a train tracks, which makes me think of like, Old Metairie. But anyway, so he said they were walking down a train track. And then they hear this like growling noise coming from behind them. And they turn around and see this beast in the shadows. And they all start running. And they're running for this life there. This thing is chasing them. And one of the guys falls over. And so he stops and he turns around and the thing had stopped and he looked at it and he said it was he's like i don't know what else to say but i was looking at a werewolf he said it looked female i could tell it was a female werewolf and i just froze the guy on the ground could not do anything luckily one of the other guys turned around and had he had a fanny pack on with a gun in it so (laughs) Oh, thank God for that. 1980s, like (laughs) fanny pack with a gun. Yes. I mean, it is New Orleans in the 80s. Come on. Um, So he pulls his gun out and he shoots at the thing and it runs away and they, you know, then they were fine, whatever he makes it. And he was just like, he was so, he ran, he got in his car, he ran to his car and he he drove home and he said he wouldn't leave his house for days because he was just so terrified. And then finally he had to, um go to work and so he goes into work and his boss was like what's wrong like he, she could tell that something was was wrong and um and he so he told her the story and she goes oh you encountered a loop guru oh yes, yes. the loop guru the loop guru so um if you're not familiar down here in Louisiana um the loop guru is basically a werewolf and from the swamp from the swamp well yeah no, not necessarily, because mm. a loup uh I think they also have them in France. So my kids go to a French yeah. school, and their mascot is the loup hmm Anyway, that's my tidbit.
1: Little loup Guru encounter in the 80s in Metairie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, woods the woods of, of Metairie. Metairie. <laughs>
1: So, you know what I'm thinking is airline highway, Mm -hmm. it's got the railroad tracks next to it. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, there are, there probably would have been trees Mm -hmm. before some of that was developed. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there probably would have been some woods, not a lovely one lane highway. No, definitely not the picture that they showed. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. So anyway,
0: men in black. Okay. So. Hopefully this I won't take up too much time. I did read another book. (laughs) It's called The Real Men in Black by Nick Redfern, who is really big in the alien world, uh, paranormal world. He's written a bunch of stuff like a lot. I looked at his bibliography. I was like, dang, that's like a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was like. Dang. You got lots of books. Dang. You write a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the first documented account um, happened in the, the 50s, the early 50s. And this guy, Albert Bender, he was like 30 something years old he was kind of a uh, an eccentric he lived in his stepfather's attic and he was into anything weird and occult and paranormal and he even turned his attic room into a quote-unquote chamber of horrors where he would like create
1: mm-hmm. masks
0: of of demon things and make it like it's like a haunted house can,
1: can we can we pause for a second Do yeah. do a second tidbit really, really yes. quickly um recently they busted a, a Mm, smuggling smuggling is not the right word um (laughs) I don't know drug dealer um no crime ring we'll say okay in at Harvard Medical Center nice in the morgue the people that ran the morgue were apparently selling off body parts any body part anyone wanted they were taking the bodies chopping them up they could basically come in and pick what they wanted you'd be like I want that bone I want that leg one of the women that got busted and it was like all very brazen. Even like some people would write checks and in the memo be like, brains. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. But one of the women would, had bought a couple of faces Ugh. because she had a shop like that that she made weird freaky dolls. And apparently some of the dolls had actual human faces. No. yes. Well, how do you prevent that from decaying? I don't know. Oh. I mean there's
0: things. Oh, it puts delusion yeah. on its skin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. That turned my stomach. Okay. Um, so he also had OCD and he would like, you know, was very particular about where everything was, uh, in his room. So December of 1950, he became obsessed with UFOs and he started hooking up with like-minded people and he wanted to set up a worldwide network of UFO investigators. So in April, 1952, he created the international flying saucer bureau, AKA IFSB and published his own magazine called space review. And it took off really quickly, like really quickly. And he had reports coming in by the bag load from all over the world. He even like had, he had to set up representatives in other countries. Cool. Um, So only a few months later, he began having some strange encounters on July 30th, 1952, the phone rang and he picked it up and no one answered, but he could tell that someone was there and his head started spinning and throbbing and he had, he hung up the phone and he had to immediately go to bed and then a few days later he went to see a movie and on his walk home at night he had the feeling someone's watching him when he got home his stepdad was already asleep so he went up to his attic room and from underneath the door he could see a green glowing coming from his room and so he flung open the door and he saw a bright shimmering object hovering in the room and it was overcome by the smell of burning sulfur and he said his eyes became irritated. So he turned the light on and the object disappeared. And he had noticed that all of his IFSB files had been rifled through. November 1952, he was in the movie theater again, when he was overcome with a sense of dread and out of the corner of his eye, he saw a human materialize in a nearby seat. And it was a well-dressed man and a dark clothes, but his eyes glowed like flashlight bulbs. Again, he was overcome with dizziness and nausea and closed his eyes. When he opened them, the figure was gone. And a couple minutes later, he again felt like he was being watched and he slowly turned around and he saw the glowing eyed man staring at him. And he ran out of the theater. And over the next few months, his dizzy spells continued. He continued to see manifestations of the dark suited entities. He had poltergeist activity in his attic room, the sulfur stench hung around sometimes for days and he began getting migraines. And it culminated in mid 1953 when he was visited by three of the dark suited men who revealed to him the truth behind the UFO presence in this world, but warned him never to talk about it to anyone or they would kill him. So he wrote a book. (laughs) I think he did eventually, and I'll talk about that later. He was so terrified by the experience that in October 1953, he announced in his magazine The Space Review that he was closing the doors on the IFSB and leaving the UFO arena for good. He said, quote, we would like to print the full story in space review, but because of the nature of the information, we are sorry that we have been advised in the, in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. Saucer work. Saucer work. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So he did eventually write a book like later on, Mm -hmm. I want to say like in the sixties or seventies and anyone in the UFO community or everyone in the UFO community was like, it's, complete fiction like the stuff that he was saying it was ridiculous like
1: <laughs> like the alien hot i mean it takes it you know, takes a lot for uh, for that community i know that. it's right. ridiculous
0: um okay so what i'm gonna do is kind of just go through a timeline of different stories um
1: that stuck out to me that were so cool i thought the men in black were gonna be the government guys So I thought that was a thing. No. Okay. I think it
0: is a thing. So I was watching the show on Gaia and I can't remember what it was called. I should have looked at this. I should have written it down, but it was this man who used to work for the um, Air Force and he was like, uh, oh, no, he was Department of Defense, I think. Mm -hmm. And he said that there is that he was claiming that the men in black are government officials that are kind of off book. Mm-hmm. um they're masters of disguise and they you know can't dress up as anything and they are sent out to so not in black right <laughs> correct which is interesting because he was like he was like they would be sent out like uh he gave an example of this one time, you know, somebody witnessed a UFO and the the cops and the government officials go in and they interview the people, but they were like, okay, they're not telling us something. So then these guys were sent out like, and one of them shows up as like a phone line repairman and just starts chatting with them and gets more information out of them Mm -hmm. that they didn't know. But it's like, well, that's not a man in black, is it? He's a phone (laughs) line, a phone line man. (laughs) So but he was like, they're the masters of disguise, And they they use the men in black thing a lot. But I think that, honestly, I think that they're both. I think that there are weird, strange alien entities that do it because there's stories of just things that can't be human. Mm -hmm. And then there's also things, stories of um, things that seemingly are very human. And the difference is that you can tell in the way that they speak, the human ones, because there's some stories where the human ones are like, have normal tone inflections and emotions and can talk to you like a normal, intelligent person, Mm -hmm. and then other ones where it's like, they talk like robots, they don't know how to answer questions, they don't know how to use things that are normal, you know, Mm -hmm. they and they look weird. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think, and I'll talk each time I tell a story, we can kind of do a human or not human. So, in 1968, the first photo of a man in black was taken. Um, there's this, uh, Jack Robertson, who is a UFO researcher in Jersey City, and his wife, Mary, noticed a man dressed in black standing in the doorway of an adjacent apartment building for four days straight. They described him as zombie-like, standing in a very rigid and not moving, but he, was, he seemed to be watching the comings and goings of their apartment building. Jack described him as always having a piercing nerve jangling expression. Then they noticed strange clicking noises on their phone line. And Jack claims that someone rifled through his research. Mary was getting so paranoid as she kept calling up, uh, Tim Beckley and Jim Mosley, who are two, uh, big UFO researchers that lived in New York. Uh, and after, after she called them so many times, they were like, okay, we're going to drive over to Jersey city. we're not going to tell Mary that we're coming and, uh, and see, see what's up. So they drive over there and they're driving up her narrow street. They said it was really traffic at the time, but they're closing out on her apartment and they see the man that, that they're, they were talking about standing in an apartment, like, or in a doorway, like kind of, uh, across the street. There was nowhere for them to like pull over. So one of them was like, Okay, he just pulled out his camera. And as they passed him, they took a picture of him. And then they went and they turned the corner and found a parking spot real quick and ran back, but the guy was gone. And then after that, um, Mary claimed that she never saw him again. So Tim Beckley said, quote, I feel today that me and Jim were stalking Mary's man in black. And I think that if that's what you do, if you start to get on their case, they vanish quickly. But Jim Mosley, on the other hand, had a more, you know, practical view on it and he thinks that the man was just to look out for a bookie joint or like an illegal mm-hmm. operation or whatever and when he saw them take a picture of it he's like all right we gotta we gotta move joints yeah. or whatever it is and I was like that that's kind of that, that kind sense. of makes sense and I do have a picture of I mean I do have what is it called uh, this picture <laughs> <laughs> what year was that 1968 and it literally looks just like a man in black. It kind of looks like he has a little top, top hat on, <laughs> which would not. It's, it definitely has a top hat on. So they're known what they're they're known for wearing, what is called homburg hats.
1: Well, that I don't think that picture looks like it's from. Are you sure that's the right picture? Or do you think they just found a picture of a person in a doorway because it definitely looked like it was wearing a top hat uh, in in uh, England.
0: Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, in I eighteen. Mean, 18- something or other except for the car right there look that car oh, is definitely yeah. from the 60s or yeah and it's like okay so he was you the have doorman the- I he's know. wearing
1: a top hat <laughs> it looks like he's wearing tails too Idiot. honestly <laughs> he was the doorman they just so didn't know what a doorman ridiculous. was
0: they were just really freaking paranoid <laughs> <laughs> um here's a little, little side note story this man frederick holiday who was obsessed with Loch Ness Munster uh obviously in scotland uh in 1972 he believed that there was a correlation between the uh lake monsters and ufos uh, and he wrote a book about it called the dragon and the disc and he claimed Mm -hmm. that the the beasts were evil in nature and maybe had a paranormal or demonic origin on June 2nd, 1973, wow. he and Reverend Dr. Donald Oman set out to do an exorcism of Loch Ness. <laughs> Not too long after the exorcism, Holiday was back at Loch Ness and he said, Across the grass, this is a quote, across the grass beyond the roadway and at the top of the slope leading down to Loch Ness stood a figure. It was a man dressed entirely in black. Unlike other walkers who sometimes paused to admire the Loch Ness p- panorama, this one had his back to the lock and was staring fixedly at me. He felt a sense of abnormal malevolence emanating from his person. Then he heard a whispering, whistling noise, and the man vanished in an instant. Oh, so human, not human.
1: Oh, he van. I mean, if he he vanished, not human, (laughs) not human, but also not anything else. (laughs) You're apparition. You're like
0: I'm not going to say not human
1: (laughs) because. I don't i'm not gonna play this game <laughs> just play on
0: 1975 carlos antonio de los santos montiel
1: um, Man, what I you gotta
0: love spanish people and their names it's a lot mm-hmm. say it again carlos antonio de los santos montiel <laughs> took off from mexico city in his uh aircraft when he got into the air and this i'm gonna butcher these names when he got into the area of tescon to Keskitengo he was surrounded by three small saucer shaped crafts really closely, and they raised his aircraft eight hundred feet before flying away towards the Popocatépetl and its
1: volcanoes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you might be able to do a Google search on how do I pronounce? I don't care that much. Okay, several weeks later,
0: Carlos was scheduled to appear on a Mexican TV show uh, to talk about his experience, but he didn't show up. He said that on his way to the station, his car had been forced off the road and a strange man in black clothing approached him and sternly told him it would not be wise to go on the show. Human. Human. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, this one is bizarro. Okay, September 11th, 1976. Dr. Herbert Hopkins, he was a general practitioner in Orchard Beach, Maine, and he was also trained in hypnotherapy and he had a um patient. <laughs> I was like a customer. <laughs> He had a patient (laughs) who had experienced a bout of missing time after seeing light anomalies in the sky while driving home one night. So he did a hypnotherapy session on him, and it seemed that the man had been abducted. So on September 11th, after 8 p.m. at night, Dr. Hopkins' phone rang, and he answered it, and it was a man claiming to be from the New Jersey UFO Research Organization, which he later found out did not exist. And he wanted to come and talk to the doctor about his patient. And very out of character, the doctor invited him over immediately without asking his name. And after his house had already been broken into twice, and not to mention doctor patient confidentiality, (laughs) Hmm. he hung up the phone and then he went to the front of the house to turn on the porch lights. And when he went to turn them up, I mean, when he went to turn them on, the guy was walking up the stairs. Mind you, this is 1976, so there's no cell phones, and there was no um, <clears throat> there was no car parked anywhere, and there was no phone booth nearby that he could have called from. But he had just opened the door wide and said, "Come on in." Uh, and the man's clothes and his homburg hat that I talked about before. Sorry, I, we might have been on pause when we talked about homburg hat. So they're known to wear a homburg hat, h o m b e r g, and it looks like a fedora
1: did we talk about this
0: well we were talking about the top hat and then we oh. paused the sh- the show <laughs> I don't
1: remember you saying anything about okay
0: Umberger. Um, but okay so his clothes and his hat were all black and he had gray suede gloves on and his skin was deathly white and he was excre- extremely skinny he was extremely skinny with his clothes hanging off of his body When he took his hat off, Dr. Hopkins noticed that he had no hair on his head, no eyebrows or eyelashes, but his lips were bright red, which evidently was red lipstick, which he proved later when the man put his finger to his lips and then came away and there was red marks on the glove.
1: That's quite the look.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's like alopecia with (laughs) lipstick. um what i lack
1: like in hair i'll make up with in his style <laughs>
0: uh the dog began to bark like crazy at this man but then the man looked at it and the dog tucked his tail between his legs and went and hid in a closet for the whole t- rest of the time that the man was there He immediately started asking Dr. Hopkins about uh, his patient's abduction experience. Uh, He had no accent. He was entirely unemotional and monotone and seemed robotic in physical appearance and in mannerisms. After questioning him, the man told Dr. Hopkins he had two coins in his left pocket, which was true. He told him to take it out and and lay it on his palm. He instructed him to watch the coin, not him. And Dr. Hopkins said that the silver coin started turning blue, became blurry, and then vaporized into nothing. The man in black then told Dr. Hopkins that Barney Hill, the famous Betty and Barney Hill abduction mm-hmm. case, okay, um, he had died because he had no heart, just like he no longer had a coin. He instructed Dr. Hopkins to destroy any data related to his patient, and he would know if he had followed his instructions or not. Then the man's speech started to slow down and he stood up and he was wobbly and he kept having to hold on to things to walk out the door. And he was gripping the railing and he was walking down that he made a remark that his energy was running low. He walked toward an extremely bright light that Dr. Hopkins couldn't tell what it was coming from. So he ran to the kitchen window to try to get a better look at the craft, but in the few seconds that it took to run from the front door to the kitchen window, the man and the light had vanished. He immediately destroyed all evidence of his <laughs> session with his par- with his patient. And for the next week he had nightmares and had phone interference after
1: that. So human
0: um, or not.
1: <laughs> not, uh, where was that account? In Maine. No, like where was it written?
0: Oh, so this guy, the author had interviewed this man. Okay. I, I'm a su- oh, I say that. I'm assuming that he interviewed the people that he uh, is writing the stories about, but maybe not. I don't know. I cannot tell you the original source of these stories. I'm not that deep in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Early 1980s, Notting Hill, West London. Colin Bennett goes out for a movie and he's walking home around 11 p.m. When he gets to his house, there's a bright light in the sky. And he said it had a soft, relaxing ambience to it. He shouted down to the basement apartment where his girlfriend Mary lived and she came out to see it too. They were watching it when it turned into a World War II era British Lancaster bomber craft that seemed to be hovering, but it was silent. The propellers weren't moving and there was no insignia on it. And Mary saw the same thing. Then it shape shifted again into a triangle shaped craft and it flew off at high speed. So they walked back down to her apartment, and when they walked in, there was a man in black sitting on the sofa, and she was like, oh, yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) this man is here. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I've got a strange guess.
0: Um, So this man had showed up before Colin got home and knocked on her door and said that he was there to see the man who lived in the apartment above her. And he wasn't home, and so he asked her if he could wait in her apartment until her neighbor got home. And was the neighbor the boyfriend, or there's someone in between? No. Yeah, there was someone else. It's like an apartment building. Mm -hmm. Very out of character, one, for any woman to open their door to a stranger, because apparently in the 1980s, Notting Hill was a very uh, crime-ridden neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They couldn't... She introduced him, but then after she introduced him by name, neither of them could remember his name at all move so um so then they called him mr x <clears throat> <clears throat> to his face
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're so nondescript i'm just gonna call you mr x so my my takeaway on that one was that a jerk went to the movies without his girlfriend i know he
0: probably wants to go see an action movie that she didn't want to see
1: <laughs> okay
0: so unlike other men in black encounters they claimed that mr x was friendly affable educated and sophisticated with an english accent So that's, to me, seems like more of a human. And he was in his late 30s, early 40s, and he was tan with bronze shoulder length hair. Colin and Mary told him all about what they just saw. And Colin said, quote, I am being careful not to push the argument here. I got the impression that he knew all about what we had just seen. He received our experience in far too calm and collected manner for my taste. He was almost like a Don who was calmly considering the points of an essay that had just been read to him by a student and was ready to give grades. I got the impression that he was checking out our reactions and that the suit and tie, hair, and face were disguises.
1: That is a ridiculous comparison.
0: <clears throat> I know. It's so weird. And also, I was like, it took me, like, I had to reread the sentence a lot. I was like, what is it, Don? And it's like capitalized. I mean, I was just. I inferred that it was a teacher, but Mm I had never heard that expression before. They weren't frightened of him, and he gave no veiled threats like a lot of them do. But after a brief witty chat, he decided not to wait for John anymore, the neighbor. So he thanked Mary for the hospitality and he walked out the door, which. Apparently, the like the streets were just filled with policemen at that time, he did not say whether it was filled with policemen because of reports of this flying craft or if it was just because there was crime going on in the neighborhood but colin immediately opened the door again to tell him something but he was gone he had vanished and he should have seen him the i guess the way the apartment was set up he should have seen him walking across the yard to go up the stairs to get out but he was nowhere in sight so colin went around and he was asking all the policemen if they had seen him but they said no and he went back to his uh, apartment and he noticed that his wristwatch and the three clocks in his apartment said it, it was 1105 PM, which was the same time that he left the cinema. Ooh. He called Mary and he wanted to talk about it, but she refused to ever talk about it. And it became like a catalyst that ended up separating them and mm-hmm. they ended up breaking up. Um, the next day he went to his neighbor, John, and told him about Mr. X and John claimed to not know anyone to fit that a-
1: description. Human or not? Human. Human. I'm getting pictures of of a lot of um, federal men in training, learning how to very quickly jump hedges, so that they disappear from one person, (laughs) but completely manifest for someone else so that they both have, both people have an experience that seems otherworldly. I was gonna say he has a Harry Potter invisibility cloak. (laughs) I think it's funnier to think of them like, right? (laughs) Just diving over the edge.
0: Okay, bye. 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 (laughs) (laughs)
1: weird.
0: Okay. 1995, Marie Jones, uh, she was an author and her interests were in paranormal and high strangeness. And she moves to San Diego and she places an ad in the local paper looking for like minded people to meet up. She ends up making friends with some biker chick. Uh, They called her Anna in the book that was not her real name. And they formed an investigation group that particularly uh, focused on alien abductions and sighting cases. And after a while, Anna confided in Marie that she was being harassed. Strangers were phoning her, knocking on her door, weird sounds on the phone line, electronic interference. And after she told Marie this, these things started happening to her as well. She said it was always, Marie said it was always a male caller and he sounded very robotic, like they were talking through a voice changer. The man would tell her what clothes she was wearing, what book she was reading, what room she was in. And she said that the place that she was living, you couldn't see in from the outside. They would tell her very personal things that no one would know. And she asked Anna if the calls were the same and Anna said yes, and they also sounded very robotic. But Anna and her husband had people showing up on their property and her husband would go outside with a gun to, to run them off. And she said that they moved like robots, very stiff, stilted and stared without blinking. But they looked human, which is
1: weird. Weird.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The man who called Marie always knew when she was home alone. He never outright threatened her, but it was insinuated. She said he wasn't interested in talking about the UFOs, but he just wanted her to know that he knew everything she was doing, like the names of the abductees that her group had interviewed or who she knew. He even told her about things she had done back in her 20s. And it all became way too much for both of them that they disbanded their group and she moved back to LA. Okay. Human, not human. Not human. Not human. I'm like imagining like zombie-like characters milling around in their front yard of their trailer home. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. Okay. Two small little stories about disappearing men in black vehicles. 1975 in a small town in Minnesota a man was driving on a lonely stretch of highway at night, and he was run off the road by a black Cadillac. He was pissed. So he started pursuing the vehicle and then it lifted to the air and disappeared in the blink of an eye. Britain, August 1981. Jim Wilson had witnessed a light in the sky. Two men in blacks visited him and flashed ID cards saying that they were with the Ministry of Defense and that he had seen a Russian satellite, and he should forget about the whole thing. But then he noticed that after the visit, his house seemed to be under surveillance by two men sitting in a black Jaguar. So it's interesting because in America, the men in blacks ride around in black Cadillacs, Mm -hmm. but in England, they're always in black Jaguars. Really? Yeah. He called the police about it. So the police would do random drive-bys at night and would see those two men in the Jaguar. So they ran the license plate and they found out that it didn't exist. So they went to go confront the two men, two officers approached the vehicle preparing to knock on the window when the Jaguar just dissipated in front of them. Ooh, human, not human. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and no. this is this is my last one. And this is like, if you're thinking about men in black as aliens, or as governmental things, this one will throw you for a loop because falls into neither category Okay, it's a woman in black in 2000 glastonbury england colin perks who was obsessed with finding the final resting place of the legendary king arthur he believed he had found it in an ancient abbey near glastonbury late 2000 colin received a phone call from a woman who wanted to meet with him about his arthurian studies he found it odd because he had no family and his colleagues didn't know about his his hobby but his interest was piqued so he agreed to meet with her At 7 p.m. on the agreed day, he opened the door to the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, standing about six feet tall, around 40 years old, with fair skin and long black hair, wearing a very expensive-looking chic black suit. She said her name was Sarah Key. She told him, Mr. Perks, I and several of my colleagues have followed your research closely these last few years. That's rubbish, Perks replied. I've published nothing and spoken to virtually no one. If you know anything about me, you'll know that I keep myself to myself, and that's how I like it. She responded with a cruel smile and said, I do know all about you. And then she rattled off a list of detailing Perk's quest. She claimed that she was there representing a select group of people within the British ruling elite who had interest in certain aspects of his studies. She said that the resting place of King Arthur is also the gateway to a nightmarish realm of beasts and creatures that would wreak havoc in our world. If unleashed. If Arthur's tomb were to be opened, it would open the door to these creatures. So it was vital that he cease his investigations before she left. She leaned in close to Colin and said, Mr. Perks, you cannot begin to understand the enormity of what stands before you. That is why I am visiting you and not someone else. If you continue and don't let this matter drop, that someone will come calling. Believe me, and you will not want it. She became more pleasant as she walked out, but still reiterated her warning to him. Perks paid her warning, no attention and kept on his quest around 9. PM in November of 2000, he was driving home from bath on a long stretch of road. There were no other cars around all of a sudden he sees what looks like a large man standing in the middle of the road. As he slows his vehicle, he sees that it is no man he said it had pale skin scrawny arms and le- scrawny arms and legs and a pair of huge leather-like bat wings as his headlights shone on the creature he could see the bones through the skin but it was the most ter- but was most terrified by the head of the creature it was hairless with two pointed ears and it stared directly into his soul with its fiery red eyes it broke out with an evil grin exposing sharp fangs Perks stepped on the gas and headed straight for the beast, but it vanished in a second before the car hit it. He made it home and all was normal for a week until November 14th, 2000. He was jolted awake in the middle of the night by the same beast hovering above him in bed. It lunged toward him, grabbed him by the wrist and yelled, you were told that I would come a telepathic message rang out in his head. Stay away from all things Arthurian. Then the beast disappeared. Colin did stop his study for some years and he would claim that he thought that Sarah Key and the winged beast were one and the same, a shapeshifter of some kind. But after a while, he began researching the subject again until his life was cut short by a massive heart attack in 2009. Ooh. Human or not human? <laughs> <laughs> also, weird. Yeah. Uh, that's so, a whole side of things. where It's like, or... Is it just like every interdimensional being has their own Men in Black things?
1: They've all watched The Matrix.
0: Well, also <laughs> that story reminds me of the Transformers, the one with what? um with um oh my god, was that old man's name uh, Silence of the Lambs? Anthony Hopkins, uh-huh. and he's he's studying King Arthur, and then I feel like Transformers I
1: gonna... with yeah. Anthony Hopkins, yeah. Remember
0: and they like kidnap he, they kidnap uh, the girl and uh him and bring him to the, his his place. Do you not remember that? It was like the last it was
1: like number 5 or something. Oh, I might not have seen that one. Yeah. At some point I stopped watching mm,
0: That one I to catch up because Well, it's so I one. recently watched it, I mean fairly recently. He has this like little butler cyborg transformer thing mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins does. He made the whole movie
1: he cracked (laughs) me up oh my god
0: every time he did anything it was hilarious
1: interesting um so king arthur's tomb is pandora's box is ah apparently oh so what i was distracted with on my phone besides turning the air on was uh, i was trying to when you said king arthur and looking for king arthur's it reminded me of they found a king's tomb under a parking lot and I was seeing if that was King Arthur, but it was, oh, not. No. It was Richard the third. Yeah. Under a parking lot. Yeah.
0: Okay, wow. so that that is my men in black Nice stories. That are that's our my men in black stories. <laughs> Those are it be so <laughs> I drunk. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I just get excited and like my mouth talks too fast my mouth talks too fast for my brain
1: okay
0: does that make sense yes i'm just so excited about
1: men in black so excited (laughs) so what do you think well i'm now i'm interested to know because men in black that the movies came from was a comic book right now i'm interested to know what the Mm. origin story for the comic book was like if it was if it was based on any kind of you know existing story at the time you know what i mean
0: probably i mean or it could have just been well one it's like when did the men in back back Men in black comics come out you know because it could just be like like the guy said there are he claims that there is a department and you know what's interesting is Mm -hmm. that i'm pretty sure he said it was like called not department k but something like that like department uh k and i like when he said that i was like well that's interesting Mm because special agent k or whatever Mm -hmm. in in the movies so i was like oh so maybe i wonder if the comic book was written by someone who was in that department (gasps) Ooh, probably going against their nda
1: yeah (laughs) definitely (laughs) (laughs) all right from Men in Black to Lady in Red. Lady in Red.
0: There, I got it on key that time. There you go.
1: <laughs> well done. Okay, so the Lady in Red, or also known as the Red Lady of Paviland. Ooh, where is Paviland? Wales. So it huh. pro- might not be pronounced Paviland. Who knows? It's Wales. Um, <laughs> 1822. You didn't do a, a Google search
0: to see how to pronounce it?
1: <laughs> no, because <laughs> Paviland is much easier to figure out, or at least assume it's right. 1822, some mammoth bones were found in Peverland, in Wales, in a cave called Goat's Hole. Nice. <laughs> here's a picture of... The cave, it's like, and it's definitely oh, a certain hole. <laughs> I, I would say butthole, but it's not. It's no, a goat's vagina. It's definitely a vagina. Anyway, <laughs> so so I think some people that lived nearby found them or something, but not the important part. But it was you know then word spread that these mammoth bones were found. So so a geologist named William Buckland came from Oxford over to Wales um, to dig for more mammoth bones. While he was there, he found these red bones. So it's a partial skeleton of um, feet, legs, hip, and ribs. And they were covered in ochre. So it's a naturally occurring mineral that has that Mm red-brown color. And they were just completely coated in it. So it looks red. It was found with uh, some ivory rods, a pendant necklace, and some periwinkle shells. So. He assumed it was a woman oh. so he was like it's a skeleton of a lady and what what what, what? but they're mammoth bones no, no no while he was digging for mammoth bones he found a human skeleton <laughs> Let's back up. oh my god wow. I, like, I was like
0: it's a lady mammoth with necklaces
1: <laughs> he was there to look for mammoth while he was digging he's found these human Okay, bones. so the human bones ha- are are red. or red? Okay, covered in this red. Okay. Yeah,
0: okay, I was still thinking it was the mammoth bones. Sorry. Did I miss
1: that? I I don't know. I might not have Defined. clarified. My apologies. Um, so anyway, they were found with ivory and a pendant and shells. So he claimed it was a woman, and he dated it around the Roman period. So two thousand years prior to. 1822 around that time. Of course it's 1822, so there's no real way to test right. bones or anything. So Wales at the time didn't have a national museum or mm-hmm. geological museum or anything like that. So he took the bones back to Oxford and they're hanging out there. Are they Ninety- still there? Actually, yes. Okay. Um, that's kind of a point of contention oh. uh, a little bit, but so 90 years later, 1912, an archeologist William Solis goes back to the site for his own research, and he finds a lot of flints and arrowheads at the same spot where the skeleton was. And he concludes that it was a male, and he thinks it was around because of what he found. He thinks it was from the Mesolithic period, so 4 to 10,000 BCE, somewhere in there. That is a giant difference. (laughs) Absolutely. Keep in mind the first guy was a geologist, not an anthro- not an archeologist, so. Oh, really? Yeah. But apparently sense. it happens a lot that geologists, because they're digging, they'll find <laughs> things and then um, they try to date them <laughs> themselves for whatever reason. Weird. Yeah. So this is the the second guy. So then um, people start questioning. So obviously it's not a lady. still called the lady in red, not a lady. Oh. It's actually a man. Um, he just happened to have Ornament, which they you know would have at that time, yeah. And then obviously technology has come a long way. So more more recently, they actually tested it, and it was found to be thirty thousand, thirty three thousand years old.
0: Damn,
1: even older, yeah.
0: Thirty three thousand
1: years old. So it makes it one of the oldest examples of a ceremonial burial because it was the reason the ochre was on it was it would have been the bones would have been covered ceremonially ceremonially so in a paste okay.
0: and buried that way so so they would like let their flesh rot off the bones and mm-hmm. then bury the
1: bones yeah and then do a ceremony with bones okay
0: i am really really terrible at time frames I and stuff like that too. so 33,000 years i mean humans like where were we at
1: mhm
0: neanderthals
1: oh god I don't know yeah that's what
0: I'm saying like that's just sound, I'm like I didn't, yes like, humans, humans? <laughs> humans <around?
1: laughs> and it was buried was so mammoth yeah okay we would have been hunting mammoth oh, at the time yeah. and yeah
0: right so did the mammoth bones that they found was it an entire mammoth I don't think so do you think it was like found this mammoth they made... I ate. I ate a leg of it. <laughs>
1: <And> <laughs> they buried. They buried
0: like a leg of it with their with the bones for, you know, to feed. Yeah, I don't them know the if they were found in
1: exactly the same spot. or Just near, yeah. or were they all in the, all in the goat's hole? <laughs> you were all found in the goat's hole.
0: Have you checked your butthole? Be
1: what? You too. Have you not seen that video? No, Have i
0: not shown you that.
1: Oh my god, it's the best video ever.
0: <laughs> it's a music video it's hilarious.
1: Okay, I'll show you. Um, Okay, other archaeological mistakes. Obviously, people make replicas and fakes all the time and try to pass them off as, as um, real antiquities and whatnot. So that happens all the time. But here's a couple of, of more interesting stories, I thought. In 1896, the Louvre purchased a, a Scythian gold crown. They called it a tiara. It's more like a dome-shaped, I mean, a cone-shaped crown, mm-hmm. decorated in scenes of the, from the Iliad. And even they bought it, even though some other museums had turned it down because they, well, the price was really high, and they were, just weren't quite sure about about it. Mm-hmm. Oh my but my how the, much did they pay for it? The expert, their experts, the Louvre experts, verified that it was authentic and they had to run quickly and raise 200,000 francs. Did you do the conversion? I did not Uh, do the conversion from 1896 to now. Yeah. See if you can figure that out. Okay. So they bought it, put it on display. Very soon after that, experts started questioning it, partially because there was no patina on it and the Louvre. But is it not gold? It's gold, but it's really old. So we would still have even like at connection points and things like that, it should still have some sort of patina to it. The Louvre thought that was like a point of pride. They're like, look how good a shape it's in. And other people were like, uh, it shouldn't be. Um, so for six years, the press continued to to bother the Louvre about it. And they're like, you, this isn't real, you spend all this money, uh, you got to prove you should prove it. And eventually, a man in Odessa, Ukraine, named Israel Rushamovsky heard about it, he finally heard that that the Louvre was questioning it, and he came forward as the maker, that he had made it. But he made it because two men had approached him, he's a goldsmith, and two men had approached him and said they were making it as a gift for a family member. And they had given him, like, scenes, mm-hmm. um, pictures of scenes from the Iliad mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and asked him to make this um, make this crown as a gift for their family. Well, they immediately took it, they tried to sell it in Austria first, I believe. Um immediately took it to try and sell it, and then were able to sell it to the Louvre oh and even gosh. even then the Louvre was still like balking at it. Well, actually it was funny. one of the one of the original experts that said it wasn't real was a german and um and the Louvre was like, You're just saying that because you're German and don't like the French <laughs> 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 anyway, so so it is Isra- Israel um actually came to Paris to testify about it cuz he was livid he was really mad that he had been used for this cuz it's not what he he's not that kind of a person um so he was really mad that he was used in this process Who, who did the goldsmith Oh Israel. yeah um so he came to Paris to testify um and finally the Louvre took it removed it from display in 1903 so it was up for 7 years Yeah I mean can you imagine how many people got away with
0: shit back then. Yeah, like, it was so easy to fool mm-hmm. people because there's
1: no yeah. internet. <laughs> yeah, and tests <laughs> or and things like that communication. And he yeah. had actually used one of the pieces of gold they gave him was actually from uh, was a really old piece of gold from um, an old site. So it was the gold itself, some parts of the gold itself was were even old, but um, the whole thing was fake. But he actually ended up famous from it because he was all over the news and it was apparently such a good piece. Yeah, that he became famous and um, rich Parisians were reaching out to him yeah. to make pieces for him and like uh, ended up moving his whole and stuff. family to Paris. Nice. And stuff. <laughs> just nice. So I found a couple of references from there was a traveling um, museum exhibit in Germany of this type of thing of fake of archaeological mistakes. So I found a couple of references for that exhibit, but I couldn't find secondary like I couldn't prove it. I couldn't find any other like secondary what information. Year, what year did it say that the exhibit was going on? I did look on their site and it wasn't there anymore, but. Um, so it was like an exhibit of all the false things. So around. it was it was yeah. an exhibit of, of like, uh, well, it was not necessarily fake things, but things that, that had been misrepresented or like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, mistakes it. One of them was really funny and really, like, I couldn't find any other reference to it, it was a man in Hmm, maybe Romania or something, and he was a tile maker, mm-hmm. but he was it was his shop was over a, an old Roman site, and in his basement he was like digging through things and found these clay tiles that he thought were Roman clay tiles from thousands of years ago. and he like brought him up and showed people. turns out he had made them years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't remember <laughs> how old was he? He was senile. He's like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. These, these are, are so like, good. <laughs> very, li- very little information on it, That's and really I couldn't funny. verify. Um, but this one popped up in two different places, but still couldn't find anything concrete on it. But there is a picture. So, so this was a uh, someone at a site had um, dug up a iron, a round iron piece with kind of a strap on the top, and they and it had these copper decorations on it. And because of the shape and the intricacy on the decorations, they thought it was a crown. And for several years, they assumed it was a crown. Yeah. Turns out it was the top of a bucket.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> it was
1: that piece on it, was the handle. So on it? the wood obviously was all gone. So it would yeah. yeah, it was that. But they just thought that went over the head. So the handle part just went over or the like, head, and that part went around the head.
0: Well, wouldn't that be sh- faced up?
1: I don't know. Like, it would be like a chin it strap. May have, <laughs> maybe when they found it, right, maybe when they found it, it was in two different pieces. I don't know. Oh, interesting. But anyway, they thought it was a crown. Turns out it was a bucket. It's a bucket. Also, that's a fancy bucket. I mean, I yeah, don't know. Right? Like, maybe it was a bucket you... for a king. Bucket made for kings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even a king needs a bucket. So this one is interesting. The Runamo runes in Sweden on a cliffside in Sweden way back when in the 12th century, wow. Saxo Grammaticus, a historian from Denmark, studied them and originally thought so everyone thought they were runes. So words carved in stone, pretty uh-huh. much. But he thought originally thought they were illegible. But then all of a sudden, he said, the inscription was a memorial to King Harold Hiddletend of Denmark, and his deeds in battle, but no one could figure out why he all of a sudden, changed his yeah. mind. There was no kind of reason; they couldn't find any reason why he would change his mind. Mm-hmm. But then they kind of weren't talked about for a while, and then what? Five hundred years later, in the seventeenth century, a Danish antiquarian had to look that up. Someone who collects antiques. Yeah. Okay. You didn't know that? No. Oh, okay. I mean, it's kind of right there in the word. Word. The word. Well, Yeah, but <laughs> not really. His name is Old Worm. Was Danish, so maybe Ole, maybe Olay worm, <laughs> good old worm, <laughs> old worm. Oh my gosh! So he didn't even go to see it, he sent an assistant to go see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know why he's doing it because he's a collector of antiques. That's why I think that's why I was confused because he's a collector of antiques. This is runes on a cliffside, right? Rocks thing. So his assistant said they were illegible, except that he could make out the word Lund, L-U-N-D, which mm. means grove. And apparently this worm, <laughs> <laughs> this worm published a book all about the one word, Lund. And, what? and I don't know how they're doing that and what it all could mean. And that kind of like, you know, grew myths around what this, yeah. all these runes could be. It's such a mysterious thing. And maybe yeah. it's all about, this and that it was really just like a placard of like this is charlotte's grove (laughs) you know like (laughs) (laughs) well for years people people would go and look and they couldn't make out anything except for the word lund so that just kept promoting this this myth around it yeah um but at the same time some people are like no i think it's just cracks in the rock
0: so is this like (sighs) Literally in a rock on a cliffside. It's not like some something that's obviously chiseled out. Like it's like not like something well, stuck so that, there.
1: It's not something stuck there. It's in, but it's like in a very obviously a very specific band. So like there's a band of so rocks, and is, I think that's that, part of. I think that's part of the confusion is that it's hard to tell whether it was chiseled or or not, like man-made or not. So these.
0: So but the rest of this picture is stone like yeah. it's still set into the cliffside this is not taken out right yeah so it's just stone cliffside
1: stone yeah i don't know i mean yeah that and it's very... it's a very straight lines yeah. everything's very straight line right. so that's why people assumed it was or have i mean that looks like an h mm-hmm. so where are we 100 and no 70s 200 years later now 1833 philologist do you know that one i don't know that one okay <laughs> philo- uh, philo- philologist Wait, let me guess okay
0: philology philology
1: study of all things phil okay. <laughs> 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 i don't know someone who studies literary text <sighs>
0: Ah. it's a so close to philosophy
1: yeah and you can also be a phil- philologist antiquarian. oh my gosh you, you could antiquarian antiquarian thank you say it. Uh, Yeah, because because you're collecting the old books and studying them. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, his name is Magnuson. Um, He was tasked by a a, like a museum group in Denmark Mm -hmm. to take another stab at it. He actually sent several other people there. He didn't want to be influenced by by being there or or influencing them or having them influence him on yeah. what they thought it was yeah. or whatever. So we sent other people there to basically, they took a, I want to say cast, but it ended up being metal. So maybe they took a cast of it and then poured it in metal and sent it back yeah. to him so he could study it that way. For forever, he said it's, it's illegible. It's nothing. There's nothing there until one day he decided to read it backwards, and, which a. Apparently, maybe sometimes in ancient Icelandic, they would do things back, write things backwards, but it wasn't very often. Okay. But he decided to read it backwards. And then he was like, aha. And he claimed the whole thing was an ode to the King Hindleton. Just like the first <laughs> Just guy Just like said. the first guy said. Not sure why. So that re-stirred up a bunch of debate in the science community. And like, no that can't be true other people are like yeah that makes sense blah, blah blah turns out it's just cracks in the rock
0: it's just pretty like strange. a
1: striation of of you know so who, who determined
0: that like modern day geologists
1: yeah pretty much it's like the whole scientific community is like no it's just no. <laughs> cracks in the rock no
0: you guys <laughs> I
1: so mean- since the 12th century this has been going on oh my gosh it's really funny yeah
0: they're like a long-standing mystery mm-hmm. of the ruins of Renamano. Yeah. Renamo.
1: Renamo. Renamo. Just okay, so it does look one. like it could be something uh-huh. though. And I'm sure that's why they were it was such a long standing thing. Because like, it looks like A E
0: R I X H. That's what I see.
1: Okay. Good for you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh last one I think. The Persian Princess, which actually I think had a recent resurgence on TikTok, so oh. some of you may have Heard about this one and this one is one of those you know someone just made a fake thing but there's a twist to it so in 2000 mm-hmm. the pakistani officials found a persian mummy being sold on the black market oh. so they oh, um How do you do that? so they've tracked down the guy who was selling it who cooperated and told him about the guy that he was working with uh-huh. and eventually uh, he led them to where the body actually was which was on the iranian Pakistani border. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And so they took the mummy, their preliminary things were like, yes, this is real. There was a breastplate on it with cuneiform that read basically her name, I'm the princess uh, the or the daughter of king who have I think, uh, something like that. So they're like, we have a Persian princess. This is incredible. It would have been about 2000 years old, Where? no, mm-hmm. yeah, 2600 years old because of where it was found, obviously, that created political tension because the Iranians wanted it. It was worth a lot of money. I mean, they were gonna sell it for $11 million on the black market. Holy shit. Um, So the Iranians wanted it, Pakistan wanted it, created a lot of tension. Meanwhile, while they're fighting over it, they had actual- um, War? No. (laughs) i mean not over <laughs> it but like yeah. side, side i mean war. there may have been <laughs> going on they had forensic archaeologists actually studying testing it and right. everything because it's 2000 so now we can actually test things right turns out they found out the cuneiform was not written in the in the um Iranian that it should have been at the time mm-hmm. and then the carbon dating put the sarcophagus at only 250 years old and then they were doing so the carbon dating plus CT scans. Turns out the body was of a young woman, 16, who had only been dead since 1996. Oh my God. So someone mummified a body. So not only that, she had a head wound. Oh, and they're not sure if it was a purposeful head wound, like if it was murder or an accident. Uh, so. So now, so have now, they opened up a case? Up? So now <gasps> it's, a, it's a murder investigation. Yes. Except it's been since 2000 now. So it's actually a cold case. Well, yeah. Because they they tried to get this is the guy that they had originally arrested. They tried to like track all the people involved to f- figure out. But because of the way it was done, they're pretty sure that, that she wasn't, she may have been murdered, but she wasn't murdered for this. Yeah. She was. It, it was a grave robbery. So they, there was a grave, they took the body from the grave. And then they basically are saying the way it was done, because it was so expertly done, they had to have had um, scholars, and like doctors helping them do this because they aged it in such a way that it was it looked like a real mummy.
0: Okay, so question. Did they rob the grave in 1996? Like after she was buried? Or did they rob
1: it I think they robbed it closer to 2000, probably a year or two before. It probably took a while to mummify it. Yeah, because cause
0: then it was like, okay, uh, I don't know,
1: uh. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. so they don't know who the body is. So they did find out it was 16 year old girl. No, but they don't they know who she her. is. They couldn't, they couldn't identify her. Because they couldn't f- make that final connection of where the grave was who actually dug up the grave right so it is it continues to be a cold case
0: well so it might not be a cold case as far as the actual person goes because it could
1: be it could have been an accident
0: it could have been an accident or it could have been a murder that they already know who did the
1: murder you know what i mean right but the pakistani uh, officials did open a murder case just in case but they haven't been able to solve it so may or may not be a murder but still I mean, yeah, DNA. I guess over there,
0: there's not there a huge a DNA database. database.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh man, yeah. So that one is interesting. But things like this happen. I mean, people fake. Do you remember all Mom was
0: telling us? I mean, this is an antiquities Well, kind of. There was someone who was who was making fake. What was it, Basquiat's yes. or Rothko's or something? Basquiat's, I think.
1: Yeah, and they got busted. Uh-huh. No. Was it Rothko's? would be hard. Rothko's, maybe? I don't remember. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, those things are hard to prove one way or the other, so people can get away with it. Yeah, especially, well, it's like the people who fake like really old paintings,
0: that's, mm-hmm. that's an art form. hmm To be able to fake the aging right. of things. Yeah. Oh, criminals, criminals, criminals. If you would just put <laughs> all of your energies that you put into your crimes into something worthwhile, you could be such productive human beings. <laughs> but not nearly as rich. No.
1: <laughs> Did you figure out how many 200,000 francs would have been from 1896? Um, no,
0: because I didn't want to like not pay attention to you and I can't multi oh. can't like read things. I so- don't pay
1: attention to you all the time. <sighs> you don't? <laughs> <laughs> Kidding
0: i takes take some time. Know. I'm not going to do that right now. Forever. Forever. <laughs> okay, listeners. So I had to go back and research this conversion rate. I found out that in 1896, francs were equal to gold standards. So one franc equaled 0.290322581 grams of gold. And at that time in 1896 in the United States, one gram of gold equaled $20.67. So one franc equaled about $6. So at that time in 1896, the Louvre paid $1,200,193 dollars for this gold crown which in today's money would be equivalent to $43,450,721 which by any stretch of the imagination is a lot
1: of money for a gold helmet. <laughs> all right. That's all we got. Thanks guys for listening. Thank you for listening. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you have anything cool, creepy, or scientific to share with us, you can email us at lastslamstandingpodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram at lastslamstandingpodcast. And a special thank you to Adam Frischertz for our theme song. Thanks for listening.